On this week's edition of the Twin Geek Cast, we wrangle up our finest sodbusters and explore the 1953 classic, Shane. Kick back, grab a soda pop, and enjoy. Movies and friendship. Those are mysteries. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. So we had a conclusive poll this week showing that Into the Spider-Verse is... Is this how we're starting this? This is is what we're doing? Yeah. I see. You you can't get enough of just rubbing this into my face. The number one... I'm not accepting this. This, this, No, I'm not. No. No? No. No. We're not doing this. How do you want to start? (laughs) I'm just going to get into it. We're done. We're done talking about Spider-Man. We'll get back to him in the, the box office. Hey, let's start with the box office. How are you doing, Calvin? Oh, doing okay. How are you? I'm good. I'm good now. Alright, so, box office as usual this week. We're back for another one. Number 10. Here we go. Vice. And Vice was a new Adam McKay movie, and it's interesting. It is partisan, as you would expect from McKay. as a way of kind of talking down to the audience that I'm not entirely with, but I think it's worth a look just to see Christian Bale transforming. Uh, this man gains and loses weight like it's nothing. I think the talking down thing you bring up is interesting. There was another review I saw that kind of compared that aspect of the film to the same kind of manner he did with The Big Short. Yeah. But with The Big Short, it kind of, he, at least this critic argued as well, that it kind of made sense because the housing crisis was something we kind of had to be talked down to about because a lot of people didn't know, as opposed to something about, like, the, you know, Bush administration where it's already been heavily covered enough that we kind of know a lot of what's going in. There's no need to talk down to us about it. Yeah, the feeling is kind of like, oh, you were just at home looking at your memes, but this is what was really going on. And it's kind of like, yeah, we noticed the 9-11 thing and uh, the way that none of us had jobs for a decade, we we noticed. Yeah, kind of hard to miss that. <laughs> uh, what do we have after that? Yeah, after that we have nine, uh, the mule, more Clint Eastwood. The mule, uh... Not my favorite Clint Eastwood. I think it's just serviceable, which is a weird place to be. You know, there's not a whole lot to say. It has hung in here a lot longer than I expected. And people react well to Clint Eastwood. Yeah, what do you think the last exceptional movie Clint Eastwood made was? Because I'd say it's been a while. I think for me it must have been American Sniper. Mm-hmm. That was in 2013, I think. Yeah, that was that was a huge thing for me. I mean, after that we only got Soli, then Paris, then this... Well, I mean, you forget Jersey Boys in 2014. I like Jersey Boys. It's uh, not yeah. it's not exceptional, but I like it. I like Jersey Boys. I think uh, Invictus and Jay Edgar have their merits. Um, then we have Grand Torino before that. Yeah, uh, that, that was like back in 2008, I think. It's been, probably been like that, what, like 10 years since he made like a really exceptional film. <laughs> so we're a decade later, and now he's come back with something that has touches of Grand Torino in it, so... I think if you if you find a lot in Gran Torino, you'll kind of find the same character here. So there is that appeal to it. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, move on to the next thing here. Something we can actually talk about more so. Uh, is number eight is On the Basis of Sex. Which, um, I don't know how much more we could really talk about it, but it's about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And, um, you know, there was that... Uh, there was that documentary last year which was trying to sell us her merchandising, which is a very strange thing for an already partisan documentary to kind of be like, okay, yeah, yeah, she's great, we know, and we're just going to explore what's so great about her. I think it's kind of interesting we're having, like, are you noticing that we're having a lot of, like, feature adaptations of, like, documentaries now? Like, yeah. like I, don't, I don't think this is an adaptation necessarily, but stuff like we've got, um... Uh, we also called, have like, the... Mar- we also have the Mr. Rogers film coming up a year yep, after that. Yep, that's coming up next year. Uh, Welcome to Marwin was, you know, this month as well, and even though we didn't see it at all in the box office. Yeah, that's also a doc that's all. I've been meaning to check out, so I'm going to look at that doc later. Yeah, I've heard the doc is really great. And then uh, Zemeckis did a similar thing a couple of years back in 2015 with The Walk, which already had an acclaimed documentary with Man on Wire, both of which I, I did mean... see both of those. <laughs> We're seeing a lot more lately that it's a, it's a, it's so much easier to make a movie if someone else is already making it. So, you know, we kind of get like a. I'm pretty excited about the Fred Rogers one, especially coming off. Uh, Can you ever forgive me? We have the same yeah. director working with Tom Hanks now. Should be incredible. Yeah, that should be great. Hopefully, nobody else dies on the set. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was dark. Right. <laughs> yeah. I hope not. <laughs> 
no. <laughs> Alright, uh, number seven here, we have Bumblebee. It's still climbing its way down the ladder. Which, um, it's alright. I think uh, the people who haven't had a Transformer movie, they really liked, you know, not a live-action one. So we're kind of seeing people that are kind of finding something endearing and special about Haley Stanfield having a romantic, uh, sec- maybe sexual relationship with this robot. Uh, hey man, it's it's 2019. Let's let the ladies do their thing, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, feminism is allowing women to be with robots. So, mm-hmm. but I guess it is nice to have at least a you know tolerable Transformers movie. Finally, you know, I don't know. I guess some of them must have been tolerable if they made all that money before. <laughs> but I I see why people like the Michael Bay movies, but only on like a very primal level, like a reptilian brain. It's it's China messing with our box office still, man. People like to just go see metal clash against each other for a couple hours. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it is, yeah. but hey, that's the world. <laughs> nope. On the other hand, number six, Mary Poppins Returns. I mean, the appeal there is very easy to see. Oh, yeah. I mean, you get, you get to see uh, Emily Blunt turning in her version of Mary Poppins. That sounds really exciting to me, especially how she's doing lately. Yeah, she's doing really great lately. She's been... Blowing up in the the past probably five or six or seven years or so, yeah. yeah I remember the yeah, first thing like I really noticed her in was like Looper back yeah. in 2011. And she's and just great. from there on, she's been great. Yeah. She's become the kind of actress that will get like a Twitter devoted to her because she's so, you know, so precious. And, you know, we really want to celebrate those things eventually, but I'm not going to see it till it's out on video. Right, because you're waiting to go see it with the family. Uh huh. Which is fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what you know, comes around then. I'm sure it'll be kind of back in the you know cultural discussion once it hits Blu-ray. Well, it's, it's kind of like a thing, like whether or not the Mary Poppins is as good as the original, these musicals kind of stick around the box office forever. I mean, I think we're seeing that even A Star is Born slip back up to number 17 this week because they're doing Star is Born and Dolby. They're re-releasing it because... Musicals could last forever. Even like Greatest Showman was in for three months last year. Yeah, I don't know. It's like we're we're reflecting the the time periods. We're coming up pretty soon on that time where musicals were super popular. Oh yeah, almost a hundred years ago. And so it, we'll see. It is a they're very repeatable movies too. It's one that it's like listening to an album. You kind of get it more the third time than. Well, that's how they get that. you is that they get those songs stuck in your head, and since that's the only way to go and listen to them again, you got to go pay the fourteen bucks to go see it. <laughs> Follow the money. That's mm-hmm. all we're saying. Alright, let's keep moving on here. At number five, we have Escape Room. And we talked Did about you... Escape Rooms last week. I, um, yes. I do want to try to get out to one. Maybe we could do like a staff outing at some point. I, I'm so interested in them, but they're very pricey. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that I found is that it was only worth it if you get like a group package going mm-hmm. on. As a, so you have everyone chip in ten bucks or whatever it is, and you have... You know, seven people go in to and do the thing, and it, and then it's worth it. But you, you probably shouldn't do it with just two people, especially since like there's so much shit you gotta figure out. There, there's no way you could do it with two people unless you're both geniuses. Yeah, I had a pretty cool one about zombies where we had to chase these zombies into cages, and I thought there was only one, so I got him locked up in his cage, then ran over to do a map like in the middle of the room, and there's a hole below the map. The zombie's coming out, like, between my feet, and I'm I'm just having, like, a panic attack. <laughs> I thought wow. there was only one of you. That's really interesting that you had, like, a more interactive one. Mine was, like, strictly puzzles with you know, all pirate themes and stuff, all sorts of locks. And there's a... I remember there was a Pirates of the Caribbean poster. Like, one of the challenges we had to figure out is that, like, one of the codes was you had to count the number of people that were in the poster. And that was really hard to figure out because they didn't indicate that easily. (laughs) But, yeah, that was a weird thing. Yeah, we had one section where the code to get into the next room was just the weight of of the rice that was, like, in the middle of the room. And we had no idea. It took us about 15 minutes to find something so obvious. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, you get, like, one or two where you could just kind of call in and ask for clues. So we had to kind of get around a couple of them. And we did finish within a... You had an hour limit to be successful. We finished within a 30 seconds of our limit, so I felt good about that. Awesome. That was nice. Uh, well, I think that's all we have to say about the new Sony film. Uh, what about <laughs> the next one? Oh, yes, which is also another Sony film. I'm actually surprised <laughs> by this. So, 
Spider-Verse again. Uh, but actually, it's climbed up in the box office a slot. That's, it was at five last week. That's likely because we ran a Twitter poll electing it the best Spider-Man film of all time. And Yeah, I'm sure our influence had a great impact on the box office results of this multi-million dollar film. I just want to say that it was definitive and that we did reach a group consensus that this is the uh, right I, pick. I don't know if it was a, a group consensus. Within our, within our staff, it certainly wasn't. It was at least a three against two there in the heated battle we had going on once again. But sure, uh, I concede that this flimsy Twitter poll did in fact state that Spider-Verse was better. <coughs> yeah, and we see that it, it's uh, it's performing in the box office largely due to our input. So very grateful that yes. we have that kind of reach. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that our influence clearly reaches all of the various people across the Americas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> At number three, we have uh, our first new film this week in the box office, A Dog's Way Home. It's a, it's a talking dog movie. <laughs> yeah, I thought they stopped making this. Um... I don't know. Uh, you thought after the huge controversy around A Dog's Purpose, they just <laughs> stop, you know? So is that but the... Apparently... Is that the original? Just, I, I, I read one of them while I was like laid out in the hospital, and it was good for only that purpose, I think. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's it's done by the same people, I'm pretty sure, in the same style. I caught a trailer for A Dog's Way Home in front of Spider-Verse, and I'm like, this looks awful. <laughs> this looks lazy and dumb and pandering to, to people who like dogs. The dog has to die, too, right? I mean, that's the whole point of a dog movie, is you're going... That's, that's the purpose of a... Like, if you put a dog character in a movie, that's the entire point of it. The dog has to die at a very emotional, you know, important part of the story. If you don't do that, you're wasting your dog. So, I need to get your best dog movie. Homeward Bound. I gotta go with Homeward Bound off the top of my head. I, I love me them them dogs getting home. That was a childhood uh, what, favorite. Mine though. would be, uh... What was it called? Uh, Heichi, A Dog's Tale. That one about the Japanese oh, Hachi. dog? Yeah. yeah, yeah, Hachi. Yeah. He sits yeah, with every Gere. day waiting for Richard Gere to show up. And, man, that's a special movie. That that got me crying. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also... Oh, shit, I just have another one, but I can't remember what it was. Oh, yes. Uh, I also give a, uh, a nomination to Billy Joel as best dog in, in Oliver and Company. <laughs> another good I love pick. me a Billy Joel dog. <laughs> of course, we got the Don Bluth... Um, what is it? All dogs go to heaven. Those are great. Yeah, I don't know if they're. I mean, I haven't seen them in years, but uh, I don't. Know. I found the Don Blue stuff hasn't held up as well when I watched okay. it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you're, yeah, you got to endure a lot more of those animated things. So Goofy, Goofy's a dog too. He's a good. Yeah, Goofy. They're a good Just... dog movie. A Goofy movie. There we go. That's that, a, that's, that's the best, the best dog, dog movie. movie? <laughs> I not, guess not better than Hachi though. That's Hachi is pretty top tier top gear i don't know is hachi a musical i don't think so no. <laughs> exactly goofy movie wins it's a musical <laughs> uh, all right let's move on all right at number two we have aquaman again oh, actually it moved down i guess but which is funny i mean it's it's setting records i think it's about to pass uh what is it the last dark night movie in terms of global polls so it's overperforming. Mm -hmm. yeah which is not surprising, I, I suppose. You know, it's another big Kate movie. It's Aquaman. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think the surprising thing is that Aquaman is actually good-ish, you know, by people's standards here. Like, like they made people come out to it and see it. Like, like think about that. Like, think about, like, 30 years ago, if you said Aquaman is the biggest movie right now in the country, people would, like, you know, fucking stick their head in the ground or something. I don't know. <laughs> Thirty years ago, if you told me any superhero film was the biggest thing in the country, I I would have shook my head. But Aquaman, especially. Yeah, well, because we also didn't expect badass Aquaman with muscles and tattoos all over himself. Like you'd be thinking about <laughs> little white boy in the orange suit talking to fish. Yeah, that's the that's the thing is we think that you know Aquaman's just going to be like a pushover, and then he shows up. He's like, I'm gonna steal your girlfriend. You know, he's total mm -hmm. badass. I think that's the thing. That maybe that's the best thing to come from Jason Momoa is that we can't really use Aquaman as a joke anymore. That's yeah. kind of tired and done. Yeah, I think uh, I think if it did anything, it got us past that part with the character where it's uh, okay. This is there, a real character. Yeah, he, he, he has some actual credibility now. You know. Yeah. 
which is surprising. They they made Aquaman like a believable badass. Good job, DC. I'll, I'll give you that one. <laughs> All right. So at number one, uh, we have The Upside here. Which is a remake of The uh, Intouchables, a French film from maybe like five years ago. Mm-hmm. I, which I've heard good things about but haven't seen. Um, I'm no, I don't know if I'll go see it in theaters. I, I haven't really made up my mind either way. I don't think Kevin Hart's uh, capable of uh, what it takes to do this. Like, like that little thing no. called acting and, you know. Yeah, it's it's very odd. Especially, I mean, like seeing Brian Cranston here as well. I love Brian Cranston, but he keeps... Lately, he keeps picking bad things. Like, what did so, he do that was good? <laughs> what, what? Do you think that he's a good movie star or a good TV star? Oh, he's a good TV star. What what good movies has he been in? I can't think of you know? any. So, I think some people one, just don't one play I was excited. as well. You know? Yeah. I was excited to go see Trumbo because I'm like, he seemed like he was going to be really good in that uh, role. And yeah. makeup looked great and all that. A movie just didn't work overall for a lot of reasons, and then like it, w- they kind of shattered this illusion to me when they played some clips of Dalton Trumbo at the end because Brian Cranston doesn't even try to imitate his voice. No. So I'm like, oh well, that's, I mean, that's not good then. No, he has a very distinctive voice, and he does that voice. Um, I feel like it works in something like a you know the Isle of Dogs or something is the only thing I've enjoyed. He was good in Isle of Dogs. Yeah, well, I think it's things that you also got to consider is that what big directors has he worked with in film you know like who's who's not i think that's the thing is that he's not being utilized right brian Cranston isn't an actor who could just walk into something and automatically make it better you know the reason why he was great on breaking bad was because vince gilligan really knew how to use him and i i mean i guess like his passion projects he's doing like the what is it like the stage play of network and stuff so he has other things oh yeah i seeing that clip he'd make a great howard beale i wish i yeah i mean i think yep. that might be more like his prerogative is more stage work and maybe like a bigger drama uh, like breaking bad where he has the space to create a character mm-hmm. we use that freedom and whatnot let's not forget how great he is i'm malcolm in the middle as well that was yeah. an amazing turn love that show gotta see it again soon yeah that's one of, that's one of my favorites to keep coming back to and watching yeah i think I think that in Breaking Bad, he has good dad material, but uh, I don't know if I really want to watch him as a paraplegic, like, wheeled around by Kevin Hart. I'm not, I don't think we're on board with Kevin Hart right now. No, I think definitely us, but, I mean, the world seems to be on board with Kevin Hart. He's in everything, and then, you know, what? there's, like, another Jumanji movie coming, and then there's another Secret Pets, I remember I saw a trailer for that, sitting in front of Spider-Man 2, and I rolled my eyes... What do you think they do for the Oscars? I, I vote no host. I hope. I, let's just go no Oscars. How about that? <laughs> your, your vote is no Oscars at all? Maybe. I don't know. Someone had a great idea. I saw, let's get the, the Muppets to host the Oscars. And I was like, that would be the best shit ever. <laughs> yeah. But the, but they're too stupid to do that. Because yeah. I like you should pay however much money you want to get, you know, Henson Company over there to host the Oscars. Do something. I mean, uh... I don't want to go back to Kevin Hart, of course, but... Uh... Here, 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 I got a good pitch for you. Let's get David Lynch to host the Oscars. Okay. <laughs> I think that would be great. I want to see him do that. I'd I, like I enjoy... Him, I'd like him to direct the Oscars. Like, create <laughs> a very artisanal kind of Twin Peaks vibe on the Oscars, where it, like, kind of... Everyone gets up on stage, it all cuts to black, and then, like, the curtains drop, and you're, like, in the red room, and we're talking about death and existentialism, and then he gives out an award, and just... It's just creepy. <laughs> that would be interesting. I think, you know, of course, it's the Oscars to do commercial to do something as awesome as that. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> but uh, I think that'll be it for our box office. We could move into yeah. our featured film. Yes, which is, we're going back a little ways this you know week. We decided to dive into one of our favorite genres, which we've yet to talk about here. We haven't talked about Westerns yet. Yeah. And this week we're talking about one of the best. We're talking about Shane. Joey, there's no living with for the killing. There's no going back from them. Right and wrong, it's a brand. A brand sticks. There's no going back. Now you run on home to your mother and tell her. Tell her everything's all right. And there aren't any more guns in the valley. Shane. It's bloody. You're hurt. 
I'm all right, Joey. You go home to your mother and your father and grow up to be strong and straight. Joey, take care of them. Both of them. Is one of the most influential Westerns, and, you know, we both have a common interest in them, so I think it's a fun thing to uh, start coming back to on the podcast. Yeah, I think that's an interesting thing, is that so far on the site, we've had much less Western content than I think we, me and you personally, would like. We've got that, that Stagecoast piece I wrote, and we got that big Western list, which is great, and Shane is on there as well, but this is the first time we'll get to do kind of more in-depth talk about Westerns, which we both have a grand love for. Yeah, I mean, if I had my druthers, I would, uh, I'd be posting Western stuff at least once a month. I, I think that's a pro- pretty good target for what we could do. Mm-hmm. Hopefully we'll have, like, some of the things. I don't know. I've got other ideas kicking around in my head about Western-related stuff, but I want to speak it out, too. Like, you know, I could have just gone on, like, a Western binge and done, like, five Western articles, but I don't think that would have been smart. Yeah, I think rather than doing, like, a Western week or a month or something to, like, limit our capacity, it will just be an ongoing thing that our site presents because we really love this genre. Yes. Especially this one in particular today, Shane. We love Shane. And it had been a while since you'd seen Shane before watching it again, right? Calvin? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had I'd read it way back. Like, I mean, I probably haven't read or seen it since high school. And this is the George Stevens adaptation of um, of a really, really good book. Uh, what, did, what do you love about it? Um, you know, there's so much I love about it, and it's really hard to nail down. But immediately, one of the best things I love about it, I love this kind of, like, fairy tale like atmosphere the film has it's not a gritty kind of western in any way it's very fanciful and i think it's a very interesting and different road to go down with the western genre that you don't see as much so i've uh i started reading the book just last night it's only like 130 pages so i'm about halfway through it's just one of those books i always keep around because uh it is worth revisiting it's very conscious self-conscious western but uh one thing that appealed to me this time is it does have um, the atmosphere of like a medieval knight coming to town like it feels like he's a you know he's like clad in unusual western garb and stuff and he's kind of like beaten down by the trail but you could still see that he had like a very elaborate ornate clothes at one point mm-hmm. well, I think that's the interesting thing as well when you see Shane ride into the film is that he's not dressed like a typical cowboy you mm-hmm. imagine he's wearing he's wearing pelts and furs it's not like a you know a uh, gallon hat or whatever it is and his belt's even a little different you know in ways he's definitely a, a different kind of western hero but unmistakably this iconic gunfighter image i mean like even in. even his revolver is like worn over with like leathers and has horses engraved in it and you know nobody has any kind of fanciful stuff this is just a ranching town in the middle of wyoming and you know these people just keep to themselves so. I think that's an, uh, another really interesting, unique aspect about Shane as well, is that the setting is different than most Westerns. This is a, a Midwestern Western, you know, mm. it's not about the, you know, it's not a California, you know, gold rush Western, it's not Texas Western, it's not even the Arizona area. This is the mountainous areas of Arizona, you know, mm-hmm. there are times in the film where it's very wet, you know, there's scenes where it's like raining, pouring down, guy gets shot dead in the mud. And you don't see that as much. You know, it's not a dry Western. It is more of like a prairie Western, right? Yeah, definitely. You know, you got that aspect. And those mountains are always in the backgrounds of the shots. The big, beautiful Wyoming mountains. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, the location shooting for Shane is absolutely phenomenal. I believe this film did win, like, an Oscar for cinematography. Deservedly so, because it's beautiful. I mean, well-earned for that. And the interesting thing about that cinematography award is they had to reformat it for a new widescreen. So they had to cut off, like, the top and the bottom of the film, and it's still one. So you know how beautiful it, it is. Mm-hmm. I actually found this interesting when I were around. That um, chopped version of it is only available. I think, like, the, the Library of Congress or someone has mm-hmm. possession of it. Uh, otherwise, it's all in the standard, how it was shot, the, the 4 by 3 aspect ratio that you usually see. Right, and so it is interesting that it that it ended up getting elevated to that point while also being, you know, 
uh, converted into a new format and having to adapt. So, uh, are there anything else that you noticed immediately upon this watch of Shane that you really like, Calvin? Um, I also think about something like, I always thought it was more influential or important than something like High Noon. Um, I don't know where you're at with that. You know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, this film came out like right around the same time as High Noon. They're about a year apart. And I, I'd say they're about equally as influential, if not, you know... Uh, Sheen has a, maybe a little bit more that's immediately identifiable. The ending, of course, is super iconic, super familiar, but also this kind of um, story and relationship you see a lot more. Sheen has also been remade in a myriad of ways in different interpretations, um, mm. one of which even done by your pal Clint Eastwood there. I don't oh, know if yeah. you remember. Yeah, Pale yeah, Rider. Yeah, he did Pale Rider, which is very similar, but certainly inferior, I feel, to Shane. Okay, yeah, um... And the other thing was that Shane was actually sh- completed shooting before High Noon. It came out a year afterward because mm-hmm. it just took them. So the a while. editing process was yeah. so meticulous. George Stevens spent forever and ever working on it, and you know, making it happen. Whereas High Noon was kind of a very quickly made production. Mm. You know, they kind of just sped through it, especially with the kind of threat of uh, all the blacklisting going on with um, the the writer. Well. Carl Foreman, that was it. And uh, Shane, I think, always deserved that same status. It it has a little bit lower reputation, but I feel like uh, whatever it didn't get in the book form, it was sold. It was sold very cheaply to be a movie, which is always interesting. You never know when you're going to come upon like an enduring classic from a book that never really took off, right? So. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting how those, like, how many fantastic films were adapted from books and you'd never realize it because they're either nothing like the book or they're just so like transcendent in their interpretation you know that you couldn't even imagine a book being like this sometimes they take you know like dime store cheap books that are nothing more than a very thin plot and they inject so much into it and really make it great you know i think the thing to look at is that this one actually is pretty close that uh, some of the names have been changed, like uh, Joey is just named Bob or something in the book, but uh, mm-hmm. it it kind of focuses the way the film does. It, it, it informs how the camera would move. Like, it follows the boy's vision from, you know, Shane, the way he moves, how he interacts with people, the way his mom will respond. Um, so there's just a... It has, like, a cinematic lens behind the way that the author has written. It's not an entirely literary Western book. It's very cinematic feeling i see why they optioned it so quickly well i think that that perspective is such an important you know it's an integral part to why shane works so well is because um you know every perspective in the film it always comes back to how people view and interact with shane and it really lifts his position to this mythic level especially when viewed through the eyes of joey Mm -hmm. you know the little boy of the starrett family and I think that's the real genius of Sheen throughout the film is seeing uh, how often they put Joey in scenes that he usually wouldn't belong in, but having him like watch Sheen throughout the film and just with this look of admiration and constant, you know, cuts to close-ups of him to put us in his you know kind of shoes there and empathize with Joey's position so that we too see Sheen as this great figure you know in our lives essentially who represents everything that we want out of a hero. It's harder in a film than a novel, but I feel like they did the adaptation right that way. Like, you'll have him looking through, like, the slats in his bedroom, seeing Shane, and then Shane will circle around that side, so you have, like, this great context for how the boy's experiencing him, or how he's, like, a within the bar fight, he's under, you know, under the barrels, just uh, sucking on, like, a candy cane, watching him fight. Well, there's a the, there's like a great moment I love in the fight too, where where Shane's like punching me. He throws a punch, and then they cut to Joe, and he snaps the candy, like, <laughs> almost like right with it, like to emphasize, like he feels like he's participating. And that's something they do as well with Joey. They give him action constantly. He runs around with his little fake gun, mm-hmm. you know, pretending to be Shane. You know, he's doing like this. You can see how he's emulating him and wants to be like Shane and admires him so much. And I think, you know, I think the thing about Shane also is that when you live in a community like that, you can't act out like your wishes, like your, your the ideals that you always wanted to aspire to. So when someone comes around, it's not like Joey dislikes his father, like uh, his whole family no. obviously respects his father and Shane does too. But there is like a point where, you know, they're just doing their own like plow work and they don't want to disrupt the ebb and flow and look what happens when they do. 
Mm -hmm. Well, that's, I think, one of the interesting, most important thematic things about Shane as well, is that Shane is not trying to be a gunfighter. Shane comes down in these mountains, is trying to pass through and get on with his life. He wants to put the gun down forever. He's tired fighting, you know, and doing things. And you see that immediately. Like, when he first goes out into town to pick up the wire from, you know, for Joe, yeah. uh, and he gets kind of, you know, in a little bit of a uh, tussle with the men at the bar originally yeah. over getting a soda pop, and they kind of make fun of him. They throw some whiskey on him. And he specifically <laughs> does not fight them in that scene. There's a lot of tension, and it feels like something's ramping up to it, but he does not. He resists the urge to, like, fight them in any way. But yep. does eventually kind of do that when he comes around the next time. He almost has a humor in his restraint. Like, they're calling him Sodbuster and Sody Pop, and he's, like, just kind of laughing it off. Yeah, because <laughs> he goes in there and orders I, I a soda where these men are drinking, like, hard whiskey and stuff. <laughs> right, well, and he's getting it for Joey because, right. you know, he's, he's trying to care for him. But I, I love that. It's just... And it's a funny way if they say that is like, hey, look, it's Sody Pop again. <laughs> yeah. And they use a uh, sodbuster very liberally. The most sodbuster uses in any film. Certainly, what they're like twenty, thirty uses. There have to be. <laughs> I think I had to look it up again just to make sure they were using it right. Yeah. Like constantly, I'm like, that is what that means, right? <laughs> I know. I had to look it up the first time. I'm like, okay, a plow worker working through the farm. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, makes sense. And I, I think the the important greatest thing about Shane is Shane himself like their yeah. casting with Alan Ladd is so perfect because he's so perfectly like you know captures his character just this entirely um like emblematic character of what it means to kind of be a hero which is interesting because that's not usually Alan Ladd's MO sometimes he'll play a bit more of a you know he, he used to kind of play more gangstery kind of characters mm -hmm. in various noir films that was one thing I read in the author's forward is that he was just looking at like uh, hard guys who were pretty outside westerns, and you know, a lot of his uh, picks were just ruled out just because they've never ridden a horse before, because you know they didn't have any real appeal in a western movie. But uh, Alan Ladd, I think, is perfect. He's a little bit short for the part, but they've shot they him. They make in it such work, way, you know. They, yeah, they they imply they, it. They shoot him so that he looks tall. You right. know, he does look tall. Like I never felt like he was his actual size in the movie. Was it like? Five seven, I think you read that, yeah. that Alan Ladd was, which is short. It's kind of really short for a guy. And when he's coming into town, he doesn't look like a Clint Eastwood. He doesn't look cool or like. A, he's very know. reserved. He's a reserved kind of character. He doesn't. He's not he doesn't like smoking a cigar. <laughs> no, he never smokes in the movie. Actually, yeah. which is interesting. Nobody does. No. I don't think. Are there any cigarettes in the movie? I don't does. think there are. Oh, there. There's some where the guys are like sitting outside the bar at the near the end. I think someone's smoking, but it's never like a main character. You never see it as like a characteristic. Like nobody smokes as part of the thing, which is almost uh, always a thing in westerns. Whether it be like a pipe or a cigar or something, like it's it's usually a, a huge characteristic you see, which is in interesting. And um, yeah, when Lad comes in, I know like a Robert Roger Ebert's review is like he's kind of dressed like a a little prissy guy, and I I, I kind of like his costume because it does recall more of like a pageantry or like a medieval knight kind of thing than. You know, like a hard-boiled Western archetype. Mm -hmm. That's the thing is that he's not a hardened Western hero. No. He's very much so a kind of emotional character. And I think that's what really lends him so much. And why we're, as the audience, kind of immediately, um, you know, taken by him. And he's not even, like, the romantic of the, of the Western ideal. This is a guy that was, like, left over after the Civil War. And kind of what happened to people that are, like, a you know, expatriate from their own community and have to, like, roam around and find their own lot, but uh, he's such a rambler that he'll never find a place to stay. He'll just have to keep moving. There's a really interesting conversation later in the movie as well um, about this kind of ideal, and mm -hmm. I remember in, in the Western list that I wrote, I kind of compared Shane a bit to the Searchers, and because they both carry these same themes, is that they're both about these Western heroes who are at the end of their times, you know, they're the people who were needed to kind of win the West and pave it over and do all the bad things that we needed to kind of get where we were. But afterwards, when we have all that, those aren't the kind of people we want in our society, so we shut them out. You know, they're no longer welcome to join into the world that we've that they've helped create. Yeah, I mean, he really does not fit at all into this community, and even the... Um... He, he Even, does for a brief time, and that's, right. I, that's the sad thing. He's got that great, that fantastic speech at the end 
about, you know, I you know, I tried to fit in, but you can't break the mold. You know, he's basically like, I'm a gunfighter, and that's, you know, what it is. That's always what it's going to be, no matter how hard I try. What you does know? he say? You can't come back from the killing. Yeah. Something you, like that. There's no living with the killing. There's no living you with know? the killing. You can't do that, and that's the thing, is that he tries his hardest. That's the thing. This is, like, Shane's last attempt to try and break ties with, you know, his violent past. That's the thing you got to consider, is that, you know... Sheen was, at one point, a very violent person. And that's one thing another about the film I want to say, is that there's some real great violence in this film, which you don't expect. And it's cutting. <laughs> it's more cutting than you remember when he goes into the bar, and the fist fights are pretty brutal, and they have impact, and they're punched. The sound effects are really great in it. I remember, like, because when he first knocks the guy, you know, out, and he comes back, and there's a close-up of him, and he wipes this huge amount of blood from his face. Mm. It's like, oh, shit, like, there is blood in this film. Uh, one thing I love about Shane is a aside is that it's the first one of the first westerns to amplify gun effects. Like they'd just shoot into garbage pails and have like an amplified version of what the gun ricochet would sound like within a pail. Well, remember, if I remember right, because this is almost kind of an an anti gun movie in a kind of way as well. Right. And then it wants to show the you know how dangerous they were and whatnot. It takes a long time before the first gunshot in the movie is heard. And then it's and meant to startle you and like catch you off guard, like very much so. I believe it is the loudest sound in the movie. It is definitely that first is. gunshot. And it comes, it's fast. The you know, boys like <laughs> Yeah, the boys always playing with unloaded rifles and stuff, so it there is like a message of what happens once you load the gun in there. Well, because they have that great close-up on Joey right after Shane fires off the gun, and he's just got these wide eyes, like, oh, <laughs> shit. That's what that does. Mm-hmm. Is it? Great moment, though. That whole sequence is really great where he's using the gun, and Alan Ladd is so perfect in it because he just maintains this very cool composure. Every time, like, I love early on in the film as well when he hears a lot of noise and he quickly grabs, like, his, his belt. He's so fast. He's so fast in the movie. Yeah. And, you know, always very perfectly poised and this thing is that he's uh alan ladd handles a gun really well in the film you know he looks like a very accomplished gunfighter yeah and he's he's very slick but uh, then you look at like the shots where he had to show joey how to shoot the rocks and then you know they say that took like about 90 takes for him to figure out how to get you know of course it does because that's a complicated shot to make from that position mm-hmm well, it's a very well-done sequence still, and, you know, I think those shots, the amount of time that it took is definitely worth it still for what you oh, get. Yeah. It's a very memorable scene. Joey's reaction to is priceless. Absolutely. And it really makes that moment. And then he has the whole explanation. I think that, I think that's kind of an interesting thing for a movie that is anti-gun. It makes a very good defense of guns in that speech, you know, the, the gun is a tool speech that mm-hmm. he gives to Marion. There's, um, we should talk about Marion a little bit, that it is Jean Arthur's last film role that she came out of retirement just for this. Yes, you know, which is interesting. And she does look a little old in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, once you notice it, it's kind of hard not to notice it, but she does the part really well. She plays this, you know, she very kind of loving, you know, character, I think. You know, and her relationship with Shane in the movie, I think that's one of my favorite things, is that she's not just a woman in this world she actually has a role to play in her relationship between both her husband and shane and this kind of pull between like there's definitely a love triangle kind of thing going on here but it's all very subdued we were talking about the other day how there are very few westerns with a feminist or female perspective like there's obviously the ones designed to rad women and then we have like drew grits and then this one has an interesting perspective where it's neither like love interest or you know, an object because he's she's someone else's wife and she stays through that role. But despite their physical, uh, you know, they they have obvious attraction, but they never act on it, which is different from most. Which is another similarity with the like the beginning of the Searchers. Like I said, there's a lot of similarities with the Searchers here, which I think is interesting. But yeah, that kind of there's hints of affection, you know, there. And I think those kind of nuanced ideas are a really great thing to add to a film like this. And it's not easy to inject with, like, those subtleties or something the actors have to be able to communicate, you know, unknowingly. And I was trying to sell it pretty hard yesterday as one of the first gay westerns. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was funny because that, that was something kind of evolved from uh, something I'd mentioned, that there's uh, one of the interesting reads I think you can have on the film is this particularly homosexual lens. And, you know, of course, that's not built into the film. I think it's just a product of the relationship. Like, I don't think it was intentional on George Stevens' part, you know. 
I think it was is very much so just kind of what they had for like his particular relationship, uh, Shane's relationship with Joe, the father of the family, has some very overt homoerotic vibes in a very good way though. Like I don't I don't look at it and laugh. I'm like there's there's some actual like ideas kind of going on here and this um you know this care they have for each other because every this thing is that everyone in the movie loves Shane. Everyone loves Shane to the bottom of their hearts and they don't want to see him have to be a gunfighter again. Well, there's this thing, especially evident in the book, where Shane's a little bit effeminate and the dad's, you know, the dad's meant to be, Heflin's character's meant to be um, kind of like a rock, just a solid guy. And when they're out there working on the stump, you know, uh, the wife comes out and she's trying to talk to them over and over again. They're like, uh, Miriam, we don't want to know. And she stood out there so long that uh, both her pies in the oven burnt. So uh, <laughs> she's even distracted watching them move this giant stump together. And there's a very... Uh, homoerotic vibe to what's going on there like there were like um, Alan Ladd throws off his shirt and they're both in the like, movie it's very like sweat. there's there's this very like the whole tree stump moment is a very powerful one in the film both for the uh, obvious meaning that's going on there but also with the the subtext there that you potentially have with this kind of homoerotic relationship in there you know you see them working together and the, the looks they share it's very much so and then you've got this idea of you know, Joey having two father figures, essentially, to look up to in his life. So there's that vibe as well. I'm not saying it's a, it's only a gay movie. I'm just saying that it has stronger scenes than Brokeback Mountain that are homosexual. <laughs> well, well, I think, what's, I think it, it's interesting as well, because you could look at the film as a kind of way, uh, like, like if you want to look at it strictly through a homosexual lens like that, and you could look at the, the Rikers, you know, the, the clan as a form of, you know, oppression, like they're trying to, to snuff them out of the valley here because of their values, because of their potentially homosexual values, you know? And that's something that's... There's... Uh, yeah, it's, it's there. It's definitely there. It's not, you know, there's some kind of thing we could, discussion, commentary we could get into, but obviously we haven't thought it out all the way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's some kind of American hero worship and the center of masculinity uh, masculine sexual agenda being expressed through westerns, but we're not a cowboy's it. revolver is a phallus. Yeah, that kind of yeah, idea. <laughs> we get it. Um, I think the one, I think the only complaint either of us are going to have is one of mine that I feel like the film is pro expansion and pro coming into territories and kind of digging them up because. They're, they're pretty much infringing on the Rikers land here. Like this is a. That's an, um, it's a very interesting point they actually bring up in the film that yeah there's a moment there's a speech they give that makes the rikers situation a sympathetic. little more sympathetic yeah. yeah and that's interesting and i really appreciate it about the film because it means that the morals aren't black and white you know you got a little more push and pull there and some of the you know the best westerns really have that more askew moral area there i just so don't whole... i just don't completely buy that they're the bad guys in the film because you know, they, they have their established ranch, and the way that they come into the family and kind of confront them makes them great villains in a film identity. But I think I, I think I read, even the author was like, I wish I had changed it so that the ranchers were the uh, heroes and that it went the other way because it makes it an anti... Um, it makes it it makes it pro-expansion and eliminating lands that uh, families could just live on, mm -hmm. which is just making way for city and ruining the West. Well, I think that's the thing that you have to think about is that you got to think about them in the context of who the Rikers are in this situation, where we're at, you know, historically and what's going on. The Rikers are essentially in the same box as Shane is. Yeah. And that they are the people who pave the land for the rest of the Americans to come through and cultivate. And they're the kind of people who are violent and forceful and who we no longer want as part of this new country, you know, that we're forming more so, yeah. you know, and that sucks for them. And it's awful, and you're sympathetic because it's like they worked so hard, they lost many people in doing this. There's that whole speech that Riker gives about it, but that's the idea is that, you know, it's not something we want. And if you want to take a step back even further <laughs> and look, like, like you got to consider that that whole scenario with paving the western frontier on many fronts is kind of messed up. Like, the guys yeah. who we're, <laughs> we portray in the movies as good guys are not the good guys. We were the bad guys the whole way through. I mean, like, come on, think about this. what this is. We stole land from the Native Americans. That's as simple as it is. But... Yeah, I mean, the way that they 
frame it in the movie they have ownership of the crick that they you know uh and the the guys are just diverting from their land to feed their crops which makes sense because they were original ranchers and they're hurting their bottom line but there is like a there's a, a multi multi-dimensional problem here yeah and so it's an certainly an interesting thing to look at you got to look at it from many sides you can't just say well these guys are obviously the good guys or whatnot i think that's an interesting lens certainly that the film has but basically the way it's it's written off as so as in the film is that you know that's how the law states you know van heflin's character says you know the law doesn't you know the law agrees with us here and so you know this is our land this is you know we came and planted ourselves here so we have an obligation to it and the one thing you can at least take away is that the rikers manner of going about enforcing what they feel is their right to the land is entirely villainous they seem to just live out of the bar and then go make their decisions drunk and, and looking for a fight right and then they'll bring in like you know these big gunfighters like jack palance's character to come yeah. off and kill some of the ranchers like that's where it starts becoming really heinous and jack palance is also excellently cast he's he's amazing oh yes he's a fantastic villain and they really do a good job of building up his reputation as well like when the first mentions of it i think what's interesting as well is that before he even mentioned um you know you have this idea of who he is because he has the two guns on his belt and that's one of the things that's mentioned in shane's speech to joey about you know how people use guns you know and and so already he kind of projects how the fight's going to go because he says to Joey, he says, you know, some people wear a you know, gun inside their belt like this. Some people like to use two guns. But if you're good, you only need one. Right. Is what he says. Which is kind of a great foreshadowing of, you know, this um, standoff that they're going to have later in the movie. There is an interesting dynamic within uh, how the characters interact. Too. Everyone is pretty... Uh admiring Shane but he is also like you say the character that would have come in and cleared out the town like he is the same as them yes he's just trying to that's the thing is that he says in the end as well is that you know he knows that his time is done that's the speech he says to, to Riker god now the last 20 minutes of the film are so fantastic because they just lay everything out but particularly he has that speech like he's you know he says to Riker you know like well, Riker says to him something like, you know, your time is up, gunfighter, you know, where he's like, you know, yeah, but the only difference is that, you know, I know my time is up. Right. He says something along it, those like lines. even in the opening of the book, he's saying that he just looked for a place where he could go settle down and kind of look inward on himself and experience, a, you know, just some honest work. So. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's what I think makes the, the end of the film so heart-wrenching so hard. It's because we've spent the whole film watching Shane being happy with the Starrets, you know, and working his way and trying to stay out of conflict. I think that's an interesting aspect throughout the film is that Shane is constantly in scenes, but he's often in the background or he's yeah. not supposed to be there. He's he's trying not to be part of it, you know, because he just wants to kind of blend in. Shane's almost willed into existence by the wishes of the family, it seems. Mm-hmm. They're, they're almost kind of push and urge him to join in and then at the end when you know um joe is like you know trying to take care of himself once and for all like shane finally accepts the responsibility of knowing that he has to do the right thing because he's the gunfighter that's his mantle that's his role in this world and so he has to take you know care of it and i think that that fight that they have you know to try and subdue joe from going off and getting himself killed is a really emotional moment as well and then make yeah. it really chaotic, you know, with all the, the horses, like, kicking up chaos. Like, it's it's frenetic and insane and, you know, like, uh, panicky. Like, I panic when I watch that scene, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the, this is a very loud Western when it gets down to what it's doing. But until then, it's very sentimental and, and uh, almost paced out uh, slowly. It's like it's unraveling into something bigger. Well, I think that's a great contrast the movie has often, is that the very happy moments of the film are are joyous they have a great dance sequence as well they have to get like that fourth of july party you know i Mm -hmm. think it is and that's a very nice moment it's contrasted harshly with all of the stuff involving the rikers and their clan they come in and messing everything up and making everybody miserable and you know just and i think that's the, the great thing as well about the film is that you can see it on this higher plane of what it means for the the western genre and the kind of battle that's going on here and I, I love that dance sequence especially because it shows that um, 
Well, it shows a few things about what Shane is doing and how Marion feels, but also that uh, Joe, Joe starts just like, oh, I'm just being fenced out, and the book says, like, oh, but he felt okay with it. Like, he didn't feel a resentment towards watching Shane with her. It was like a, it was like an exception of the love triangle existing, and that was the only action that we actually got on it, was that they danced together. Mm-hmm. Or maybe even not necessarily that it's in obvious or overt love triangle or that maybe it's just the the dynamic that's you know Mm -hmm. she loves shane like everyone else in the family loves shane and wants to be with him in their own kind of way you know not in an overtly like romantic or sexual way yeah he's just like the family dog sort of (laughs) but they do have a family dog yeah they do that's right he he's cute that's so sad like when he's looking in the grave (laughs) do you remember that moment yeah yeah they (laughs) <laughs> they do a good job with the dog getting leading him to his points, and uh, the dog's really sweet. So, I do want to spend some time to talk about the finale of Shane, because I think it's so well executed, and it makes me cry. It makes me cry so hard, man. Shane, come back. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that ending? It's a, The whole ending uh, sequence, like, from, from the fight that he has with Joe up until getting to the bar to stand off with the Rikers. Oh, yeah, it's it's emotional. It's a gut punch. It's heavy i think it's so well executed as well like it's it's very tense when that gunfight comes around like where he first walks into the bar and you know he sees everyone around the room and you know like riker's trying to stop any conflict from him he's like i don't quarrel you know, i've got no quarrel with you shane mm. you know i'm here to make a deal with Starrett, and you know shane's come here to settle business once and for all and it's tense and you feel it and the and the fight goes by fast but it's intense it's bam 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 that's one thing. It's an emotional western. It has a lot of feelings about things. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the other thing is that I think what's uh, interesting because again, having Joey kind of follow him there the whole way lends so much, and and it leads to that powerful ending that everyone knows about. You know, and having him witness this, he witnesses this final glory. And I think what's interesting as well is that he witnesses how vulnerable Shane is still. Because Shane ends up getting mm-hmm. hurt in the fight in the last moment, you know. He gets hit by the guy from up top they didn't see before shooting him. So when Shane does ride off, he's injured, you know. He might die out there. Yeah. And so the uh, film kind of leaves that. Just, just the boy calling out to him still makes me cry. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's, well, because it's so built up because, like, and he's, and he's trying desperately to, to win Shane's affection over. And you know Shane doesn't want to leave, but... You know, after that speech he gives, he, he understands that it's not his place in the world. He's, you know, he just can't be there anymore. That's not his role. He's a gunfighter. He'll always be a gunfighter. He can't get rid of it. He can't escape the past. So he, he has to leave because the only way to keep violence out of the valley is to get rid of everyone. And this thing he says, you know, go home and tell your mom there's no more guns in the valley. And it's because he's taking the last one with him. Right. And there's... This thing where the boy's uh, yelling at him as he rides off over, up over the hill where the cemetery is, and then uh, the boy's voice echoes back, and then we get to see it play on his face like he's realizing the affection he always had for Shane within the moment that he's leaving them. But we're also realizing what the mom felt for Shane. He's like, "But my mom wants you, and you know, mm-hmm. and my dad does too." <laughs> yeah, like he's he's just trying everything he can to get him to come back. I think there's there's that great moment where you see the the reaction on on joey's face change because like he doesn't think shane's entirely serious until he gets a good distance away like he keeps talking about coming you know having shane come back and hang out still you know and then like when he keeps riding still he's like he's not coming back why isn't he coming back yeah and then i think that's the other part of this story where they are the ones infringing on the rights and the old west is dying with shane leaving the place Mm -hmm. and you can really look at this film as a kind of ending of the western genre if you want to there's there's a lot of films that kind of qualify for this and they have a really good ending that says this is where the the west ends you know <laughs> and with with shane riding in killing off all of the you know the violent men who kind of defined the west before and then riding off into the you know the mountains to himself probably die and thus with him the last of the old ways it's almost like our romance of the West isn't the beginning of it, but it's ending. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, it's, and that's the kind of melancholy theme that's resonant throughout the film. You know, 
you see Shane trying, trying to put this down. And although, and I think that reminder of having Joey there as well, because Joey's constantly pestering him about his gun throughout the film. And he's really hilarious, by the way. Yes, he is. He's, and he's great. And I think he's a really good, like, he, he's really good at being a kid. Like, you get that he's this kid, and he's constantly pestering Shane about this stuff. And, you know, but but Shane plays it cool. And he's, you know, he, he handles him well. But this thing is that he takes a long time to finally warm up to showing Joey his gun. Because yeah. for all intents and purposes, he's put it down. Yeah. You know, and he's trying to, but I think that that reminder throughout the film, you know, keeps us in mind, too, that this is Shane's character. He's not a, uh, you know, he's not a sod, a sod buster. He is a gunfighter, you mm-hmm. know, and he can't escape that no matter how hard he tries, and he keeps being reminded of it until he must take it up again to defend the people that he's come to care about so much. Yeah, I mean, he even he even goes like into the store to buy the more like generalized sodbuster outfit to try to fit in for a while, because his mm-hmm. original one's not going to play like a big old Navo hat, like dipping yeah. over his eyes and the uh, you know the frayed sweater with the uh, buckle belt that looks like he's like a gunfighter. So he kind of mm-hmm. puts that outfit away and then brings it right back by then. Right, I think that and that you know there's that symbolic gesture as well of him putting it on again to go and fight these. You know, guys, like, he doesn't go and fight in his new clothes that he got. He puts back on his gunfighter outfit, incomplete, mm-hmm. like, he's accepted his role in <laughs> the world and says that this is what I have to be, this is what I have to do, and I'm I'm gone after that because there's no room for me in this world. Yeah. And and I think there's a great, I said this in the the uh, the Western list that I wrote as well, and, again, like The Searchers, how... Shane is uh, bookended, has bookending shots. The film opens up with him coming over this ledge into the, the valley, and then it ends with him the very exact same way. After we see him ride off into the distance, with Joey pleading and yelling at him to come back, we see him come up over the hill again and disappear, and the credits roll. He's gone forever. Yeah, and we wonder what that means for Joey and the family, but we basically know that he's come in and done the, the thing that they weren't able to accomplish on their own. Yeah, Shane has has fulfilled his role in the world, and he's off to, you know, ride off and either, you know, just wander forever or probably die. And I think that's the sad thing, is that knowing that he's injured like that, you can't be certain that there's a happy ending for Shane in any way. His last shot's like riding over a graveyard, so I think it's, I think we can imply a couple things about, you know, where he's going. Yeah. But, yeah, I think... It's just an absolutely gut punch of an ending, you know, and like I remember when that hit me again, like how just well executed it is. Any issues I had with the film before were all were all very minor. There's some pretty bad day for night effects in the film, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> but like any stuff like that, like I just like I don't even care anymore because I'm crying like a little bitch, <laughs> and I just want Shane to come back. <laughs> yeah, I I think there are a couple pacing problems after the first bar fight. It gets a little bit baggy, but. Other than that, I think it's a near-perfect Western. That's the thing, is that, like, the ending comes on so hard that I'm like, I can't even care about mm-hmm. it. Like, it's it's just close enough to being perfect for me. Like, none of the issues are big enough, in a sense, that I can, like, dock it at all. Like, I'm like, they're just all very minute or technical things, and everything else is perfect. Like, these just huge, iconic, influential moments stand out to me from, like, and there's they're scattered throughout as well. It's not just, like the beginning and the end, you know. I think that's a fair enough place to be. I'm about Sh- there, too. I'm a little bit lower on it, but I'd still well, give only it... Only slightly, yeah. <laughs> I'd that's still call I'm basically... it, like, It's still, uh, like, a top 20 Western, however you cut it. It's a top, like, five, at least top ten to me. No no way. That's why it's on the list, obviously. Mm. But, yeah, like, I could shuffle around with some of the things. I have some other favorite Westerns that could potentially take its spot. You know, we talked about, like, me and me, between me and you, McCabe and Mrs. Miller before. There's another great Western that I love with um, Van Heflin in it. Have you seen 310 to Yuma? Uh, no. Um, oh, yeah, 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 I have. Yeah, of course. Yeah, there's like there's the remake that was just recently a couple, you know, like a, um, that was probably like 10 years back, actually. Yeah. And then the original one, uh, and that one's really great. I love that one a lot. And so the, I keep those all kind of in the same mind there. But Shane, I think, thematically, is a superior Western than most because of these ideas of dealing with a gunfighter or the ending of the West. Like, there are less Westerns that deal with that than some others, you know? Yeah, and I mean, if you're looking for more, go on to thetwingeeks.com. We have the 10 greatest Westerns 
in the order in which to watch them, one of your pieces. Yep, and Shane is featured on that. There's a little bit of a blurb about it that encompasses a lot of the thoughts we've shared here. Oh, shit, you know what? There was one thing I forgot to talk about, though, before we go. <laughs> What's that? I forgot to talk about I love the... Uh, one of my favorite things about Shane is that I love the score, particularly the theme for Shane. It's good, yeah. It's such a good theme. If you could add that for us, like, play us out with the theme for Shane here, I think I'll be happy. And <laughs> All then, right. you know, I'll, That way I don't have to talk about it too much. I don't, I don't want to waste any time. We'll so go the out theme, with that. The theme for Shane's beautiful. In the meantime, uh, we'll talk more next week about the next thing. Sounds good? Yeah, yeah. Uh, then we'll have a, a group of sodbusters coming back for a glass next week. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, play me out, Calvin.